I'm Baratunde Thurston, and this is Spit, an iHeartRadio podcast with 23andMe. This is the podcast that explores how DNA is changing our lives and the world around us. Today, we talk about race, the stories that define it, and how the science matches up, if at all. And my life's work is to have a world where it looks like Star Trek. You know, Star Trek, everyone has got these different sort of skin colors, and you're from these different planets, and everybody notices it, but it doesn't define who you are morally. We have so much more in common than you could even imagine. The basic thing, you put two kids together, they're going to want to wake up, they're going to want to play, they're going to want to have a good time. As they get older, they're going to want to fall in love, have opinions. This is every kid, and they all have a heart. We are here for another session of Spit in the Room. He has so many possible titles and accolades, but he prefers that you know that he was the kid who took the donkey to school. Facts. Wyclef Jean is Ça in va. the room. Ça va bien. Thank you. Thank you so much, man, for pronouncing my name right. Through the years, they've uh, I've been like waiting to get awards, and they'd be like, "Next award goes to Wyclef Jean." I'm like, "Ah, oh, man, it's Jean," you know. Yeah. So thank you for pronouncing. My my French teacher would be ashamed if I did not get <laughs> Jean correct. And he is the director of the Center for the Study of Diversity and Democracy at Northwestern University, Dr. Al Tillery. How you doing, brothers? Good to see you. Good to see you, too. At a point of full disclosure, Al was like a resident assistant in my dorm in college. So this wow. is a little bit of a was reunion. That, that about five years ago? Yeah, I'd say four or five years ago, yeah. something like that, <laughs> give or take a couple decades. Uh, so, so we're here to continue our conversation about genetics, about our history, about who we are and what science can tell us about that. And why, Clef, I'd like to start with you. What is the story that you know in terms of who you are? into your ancestry, your, your racial makeup, your genetic makeup, what were you born into? What was the story you got? Man, so I, I would say for me, it started off in Haiti. I was born in Haiti in a, a small place called Quadebuque. And uh, inside of Quadebuque, there's even a smaller village inside of that called Lacerre. And in this village, the chances of you getting out is like really rare. Mm-hmm. My father, of course, uh, similar to uh, other parents, got a chance to come to America before me. My daddy left me when I was one. He came to the United States and the idea of a possible dream on making things better to get his kids over to America. And my dad, he had a gift. He was a minister. He was a man of the cloth. He was a Nazarene minister, but now peep the catch. My grandfather was a voodoo priest, right? So the story definitely gets interesting. So my father basically defied the teachings of my grandfather was like, yo, I'm going to be a minister. Mm. And then years later, of course, uh, he brings me to the States. My dad brings us to the States. But but growing up, the Haitian Revolution, 1804, the first black general, Toussaint Louverture, and this is coming out of Haiti. So the fascinating thing to me, you got to understand, by the time I got to the United States and I was reading history, in school, something bothered me because when they was going back to black history, I was like, man, I dig, you know, we talking about Martin Luther King. We talking about um, Harriet Tubman, right? And who who I idolized, but I'm like, yo, how come nobody talking about Toussaint Louverture? Like we have to explain to these people in this class that you had Haitians that basically were free 
while you had black Americans that were slave in America and the idea of keeping them separated and making sure that these people um, never got together. So my dad always told me, don't forget, you are a descendant of 1804, mm. Toussaint Louverture. So this was like how I was brought up with a very fearless uh, attitude, almost like um, at times I think it was stupid. You know what I'm saying? Because you'd be like, yo, dudes be like, yo, get off the block. I am not getting off the block. I am a descendant of Toussaint Louverture. You can shoot if you want at me. I will not get shot. You know, like, but, I am the Black Panther. <laughs> I am. You were the Black Panther. Up as yeah. Black Panther. Exactly. The Haitian Black Panther. <laughs> so, yeah, that, that's what they instilled in me in the very beginning, yeah. uh, that you are part of a revolution. So, for me, um, I've never understood, like, the idea of not making it, like, in my brain. 10 years old, I get to America. I can't speak no English. By the time I'm barely 14 years old, I'm in the studio with Curtis Blow. Like, yeah, typical immigrant story. Like, <laughs> and you're like, yo. And then it was always bigger than music because yeah. I was like, look, you know, before you rolled the, the, the audio and you was like, yo, how you want to be introduced? And I was like, yo, just why Clef Jean? Because I think to anyone who's listening to it, okay, we can say, oh, why Clef Jean? He wrote My Love's Your Love for Whitney Houston. While Clef Jean, he's the guy who wrote Shakira, Shakira, Hips Don't Lie, breaking Michael Jackson and Elvis record with the biggest song in airplay. But to a kid like my daughter who's 13, she's like, so what? Like, you know, what am I going to get out of this? So I think the idea of saying, well, we started from nothing, like coming from a place where it looks like impossible to make it and then actually making it is more of a bigger story so for me, like just the idea of growing up and understanding the Haitian Revolution, yeah. it taught me a lot. Thank you, man. Right, man. Uh, Al, this is a nice segue to some of your work in in politics and race. And how do you come to a conversation about genetics and history, especially given the context that Wyclef has given us, where he's already laid out some transatlantic slavery and the different yeah. forks in the road that that has led to, to some of our folks? What's so amazing about Wyclef's story is he's telling an individual story, right, about his family, about how he was able to climb out of a a certain socioeconomic situation to where he is today. Of course, there's some God-given talent mixed up in there, and I love the the part about him being a preacher's kid, right? But but what I hear in that story is is a story that is, is shaped by structures, by, you know, the structure of the world, and there's a racial structure to that world. Yeah. His narrative about the Haitian Revolution, that's a sort of group-based narrative that we tell ourselves and our families, and we all have them, right? His is one that valorizes black freedom and black rebellion. And I bet that that's something that helped him propel forward, right? Not everyone achieves that kind of success just because they have that story in their background. And what's so interesting about the sort of DNA ancestry work is that it's opening us up to new stories that we weren't aware of, right? And it's opening us up to the possibility of learning new stories that we can tell ourselves. But, you know, I've got to say and challenge him a little bit, you know, as a black American growing up in a, in a pro-black household, I knew about Toussaint, I knew about Christophe, right? As a historian of these times, I know that the Gabriel Rebellion in Virginia, those brothers were trying to get to Haiti, right? Because they had heard what had happened there. So it really is a kind of, story that transcends boundaries. 
And so, but it is still a story that is shaped by the realities of the slave trade and the racial structures that we all live with. Yeah. And what we tried to do with the 23andMe project was figure out how much of those stories matter for the stories that Americans tell themselves about their identities and their race, even when they do the genetic testing. So, and, so, and I would like to intervene for a second, if I may, <laughs> as a Haitian man. <laughs> so 100%, you, you definitely made a, a, a strong point and about you, you understanding and you knowing the, the fact, the history. But what was going on, right, at the time was within a school system that we was in, mm-hmm. within a, a public school system, within structure of uh, academics and what we were getting, these stories were not told. And, of course, in parts of America, I'm sure that there was, but living in the projects and, and, and growing up. So the way that a lot of my friends found these stories, which was funny, was through the vendors in the streets. Yeah. So a lot of this knowledge, I wanted to throw that in there. So you had two parts of education going mm-hmm. on. You had that formal, <laughs> yeah. and then you had the, the brothers and the sisters on the street like, yo, this is the part of it. That so when I'm listening to like Nas Illmatic, you know, and we talk about different books like, you know, Egyptian Book of the Dead or, you know, the Israelites that will keep you on the street and debate for you with you for like a hundred million hours. You know, hot for all that. Yeah, and you're like, yo, it's too hot. But at the <laughs> and same time, they're wearing time, black. <laughs> and at the same time, though, it's like um, this was it was it, it's so important, like within this. So when we're talking about like DNA structure and everything and where did it come from? So class-wise, there was two forms of education. It was one going on in institution for us, and then one going on outside, which was the streets. Yeah, yeah I totally agree. Where, where I found out about the Haitian Revolution was from that same informal uh, sort of education, West Philadelphia, my parents' household, the books that were there. Yeah. It wasn't in the school system. Yeah. And that's exactly the point that I'm making is that that absence, that lack of information was intentional. Right. That was a structure. It's as intentional as the billion dollars that Haiti had to pay in reparations after defeating the French, which is still the reason today that Haiti's poor, right? It's all part of the same structure. And I I share a lot of the same story. I mean, look, I have a Nigerian name. We're not Nigerian, right? My mom was like a very woke woman back in the 60s and 70s and wanted to reclaim some part of our own African narrative and story. And so I heard some of these things outside of the classroom getting quizzed on all the nations of Africa when I'm like eight years old to make sure I entered this world with a dual set of skills. So I, I appreciate both of these perspectives, which aren't even different perspectives. Al, you made reference to a project, and I want to go a little deeper on the survey that you've done that examines Americans' attitude toward race and genetics. Can you describe the study and, and tell us some highlights of what you found out, especially things that we might not expect? Sure. Well, you know, we're living in tense times when it comes uh, to racial and ethnic issues. All of the surveys that we see in the media that academics like myself conduct show that tensions are on the rise. Americans are deeply concerned about the way our politics is spilling over into our social interactions, our neighborhood interactions. And it's a very tense moment in in our republic, in our democracy. And so what 23andMe wanted to know, what Joanna Mountain and Ann Wojcicki wanted to know was how much is an idea of the genetic race concept playing in these rising tensions? And also, 
how is the work that they're doing at their company affecting the climate? Is it sort of leading to positive self-understanding where right. people can bridge some of these differences? Or, you know, is it reifying race? Is it, is it making, is it making, things worse? making it worse, <laughs> right? And, 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 and I give uh, Joanna and Ann a lot of credit for just wanting to know. I mean, they came to me and said, you know, you know about race relations. Mm-hmm. How can we design a study where we can see what Americans think about the relationship between genetics and race. So, so spoiler for us, what's the answer? Are we better? Are we worse? What, what's going on? Is we're, it... we're a hell of a lot better than I thought we were. Okay. okay. <laughs> so okay. so what, what I expected as the expert on race is that about two-thirds of Americans would believe uh, that race and genetics are tightly bound together. We actually found the opposite. Only about a third of Americans nationally see a strong connection. But, you know, if you think about our our popular parlance or our our common everyday talk, we hear things like, oh, man, he can't jump. He's white. Or let's think about the news stories. The reason we need affirmative action at places like MIT and Yale or Stanford is because Latino kids, uh, you know, or black kids, they can't get these test scores. Mm -hmm. This is the bell curve argument, uh, Charles Murray. Mm -hmm. And so we expected these types of scientific understandings of race be widely distributed in the popular consciousness, and they're not. And that's good news because it means it's all social. Is it that people don't think that race is defined by genetics or they don't think that the stereotypes of racial performance and superiority are defined by It's both. It's more the first, but we did test for the second thing as well. So about a third of Americans in all of the big census demographic categories believe that race is defined by genetics. But there are variations. So white Americans believe in that. That third, of, in, you know, that is white, they believe in it slightly more strongly than the other groups, right? But then when you start to ask people questions about realms of human possibility or the way that we behave in the world, athletics, cooking, dance, right? All things I'm amazing all at. Thi- all things that you and white class, you know, are world <laughs> champions at, right? We see sort of a creeping up yeah. of uh, black and Latino and Asian uh, responses in the belief in that. So, so blacks believe that there's a little bit more genetic mix uh, with sports, right. right? Latinos believe it with the cooking, all right? And so, so the things in which the group has narratives of dominance, yeah. that third creeps up a little bit and, higher. And thinks that there's a scientific explanation. There's a scientific for explanation for it. But overall... Most people in all these groups don't see the science as part of an explanation. So we've established in this series, and I think anyone who starts to look at genetics will discover this interesting statistic. And Wyclef, I'd love your take on it as someone who's seen so much of the world. We're 99.5% genetically the same. There's 0.5% difference between all humans that genetically explains how we're not quite like each other. And we spent a lot of time focusing on that 0.5% difference. First of all, what's your reaction to that idea, Wyclef? Well, I mean, first, I'm excited. I, I just took my DNA test. Yeah. I'm waiting for the results. My daughter said I'm 1% white. So <laughs> Why'd she say that? <laughs> I don't know. We got to ask her. I don't know. <laughs> um, so once again, it's very interesting just listening to the overall statistics. Like, I'm very surprised. I would say, like, traveling probably half of the globe, I think it's something that everyone should know. Like, we have so much more in common than you could even imagine. 
it's like the basic thing. You put two kids together. They're going to want to wake up. They're going to want to play. They're going to want to have a good time. They're going to have, as they get older, they're going to want to fall in love. They're going to have opinions. This is every kid, like, and they all have a heart. Within this heart, it's going to be shaped. And I, I just think that a lot of times we just forget that, right? And because I just think, like, through the idea of politics and religion at times, these two things at times, it, it, it separates the fact that from a cell we become. Hmm. And so this is important, from a cell we become. And I always go back to that because, I, I, I mean, science will prove it. So this cell, like however you want to look at it, any part of the world, it's not like it doesn't appear as some like holy grail. You know what I mean? Like this coming from this side of the region, it's a holy grail cell, you know, coming from. So whether we're in the Middle East, we're in Africa, we're in Haiti, and in all parts of the world, we find common ground within the structure of the youth, no matter what. And I always tell people like, this is part of it that you should definitely um, think of. I'm going to give you case studies. So before I was here, I was in uh, Georgia, right next to Russia, then uh, Turkey, then Switzerland, right? Then I come back all the way on this side, and I'm in Albuquerque. Hmm. I'm in New Mexico, yeah. dog, and I'm in the 606, and I'm chilling in the 606. And my man like, yo, man, do you know this is where Billy the Kid hung out at? And they used to, and he got killed three hours from here, right? Now they're having a conversation about Billy the Kid, and then it goes beyond Billy the Kid to a conversation about mighty warrior Indians. And within this conversation now, you can see the conversation is happening amongst the youth, right? And then you have Mexicans, you have Americans, you have, but within the youth, there's no firearms. It's this ideology of conversation. So I always think like past the point of science, right? Even Nostradamus, right? The idea of saying like, okay, he has the gift and then, who, who is Christian in heart, right, understands like they still have to be a bigger explanation of things. And I think sometimes we cry at death. We cry. When, when people die, we cry. But the idea of birth, which is the greater miracle, like we don't really pay attention to that. And I think that we're selfish when we're leaving. You don't want to see somebody leave. You, you love the idea of them being born, but you don't want to see them leave. And I think that when we are born, right, and from this cell we become, I think the unification as the world moves forward is understand that the kids are more unified than we are as adults. It's so important to understand that. Al, you know, something that, that Wyclef was talking about with the politics and the religion, it reminds me a bit of your study and the survey. You have this people looking for the scientific explanation of race, but it turns out it's more of a social explanation and what we cling to is not based in science it's based in our behavior and, and how we live together does that give you more concern or more hope well it makes me more hopeful right i mean again starting from my knowledge of how americans think about race and the ways in which powerful institutions government sort of financial sort of are, are geared towards structuring our lives to 
disrupt the beautiful narrative that Wyclef is talking about. Right. Wyclef is absolutely right. If you go to a classroom of children below the age of five, they have no consciousness of what race is. They know that, you know, my friend Isaac or Johnny's skin may be brown or white and mine is different, but they, have, they attach no moral judgments whatsoever to those differences. So they're taught by adults. It's all around them. They're taught by institutions, right? And so as someone that spent their life, I spent my entire life combating sort of racial inequalities and trying to bring us together, the idea that this is one less front that I have to fight on, that we as a society have to fight on, is incredibly hopeful to me. Right. Because, of course, you know, we in the social sciences and the sciences, we, we've known for 30 years that it's not genetic. But we were worried about what the man on the street, what the woman on the street thinks. Because, as I said, all of these inequalities that we live with today, that Haiti lives with today, started with taking narratives about that 0.5% skin color difference that we have that makes us these visible differences and giving them the weight of science. So people are brought from Congo and Benin to Haiti and Georgia and Virginia, where my people are from, because the slavers believe that their brown and black skin would make them better suited to work on plantations in the hot sun, right? That's a scientific like a explanation. Pseudoscientific. Pseudo <laughs> yeah. It's a cultural explanation for cruelty that is yeah. freighted with science, right? And so, you know, the idea that we have one less front to disrupt this narrative on is very, very hopeful to me. It's good news. The survey is good news. We have a lot more that we need to find out, but this is a, a fantastic start. So let me test a pseudoscientific theory on you. As we saw the fast-paced, relatively recent fast-paced acceptance of marriage equality in this country, one of the reasons offered was more of us started realizing we have gay and lesbian brothers and sisters within our own families. Like they are part of us. We are part of them. And so they're not so distant. It's not a whole other. But it's like, oh, that's my cousin. As we start to do more of these different genetic tests and find out, oh, I got, got a little Congo in me, got a little Benin in me. Yeah. Do you see any similar possibility or is that just way too naive and hopeful? No, it's not naive and hopeful at all. We, we don't know. And I think that's the next, enterprise for, for the Center for the Study of Diversity and Democracy in 23 to take on. We can get at that with experimental research, and we hope to figure that out. But, but there is a worry that, you know, for example, the testing can cut both ways. You can have someone saying, I am, you know, 1% Congolese, and so I should get the same type of consideration in university admissions or, or employment that someone who is 99.9% Congolese and lived in, you know, the projects in Newark or, you know, Westfield. You know, so this is coming, right? And so there are dangers there. But, but the hope is that it is like the story in the 23andMe commercial where the young woman, I think her name is McKinney, she's got this very genomic scan up and she's, she says, I'm going to Cote d'Ivoire. Where my wife is from, by the way. Uh, shout, out, shout out to the Ivorians. Right? Ça va, uh, <laughs> and so, you know, this, this idea that 15% that of her that's Ivorian makes her want to go to Ivory Coast. And, but she had a lot of other things that she's not choosing, right? And so my concern is that as we get into these tests, people will choose to stress 
the parts of their genetic makeup that they identify with already from stories or the ones that will give them some sort of advantage. And that's something that our society has no idea how to mediate yet. So, Wycliffe, if your daughter is right, (laughs) that you're you're 1% white, will you use that for financial advantage? Um, no, not or at all. Any other uh, no, I, I don't think. It turns out I'm actually white officers. <laughs> my not, daughter, I have my, my DNA results work, right man. here. You can just let me drive. It ain't going to work, man. Yeah. No, it's not going to work. I mean, not going to work. I'm black and I'm a rapper. It ain't that, gonna work that's actually how I start my class, though, Baratunde, <laughs> yeah. because I've been using my own scan for 15 years. And, uh, you know, I don't know if you know this, Melly, but I'm, I'm actually a lynching survivor. When I, when I integrated my bus stop in uh, New Jersey in 1980, some high school kids decided that they were going to hang me in a tree what? and kill me at nine years old. And uh, thank God the bus driver was on time and cut me down, and I made it. And that's why I do this work every day, right? Because i always thinking back to what it was like being in that tree, right? So the first question I ask my class, I say, I put up my scan that shows that I'm 30% Scottish, right? And I say... So what does this mean? This cat is 30% Scottish. What does he look like? They reason, well, he probably can pass for white. Well, you know, and then I reveal at the end that, you know, this is my scan. And they're like shocked, right? And I think the testimony to those boys when I was nine years old that, hey, I'm 30% Scottish wouldn't have made any difference. And that's what, you know, Wyclef is saying. You know, the institutions that are policing all of these differences, the people that are policing all of these differences, there's no evidence they're going to be swayed by the genetic scan. Right. Right. But we, we just don't know where it's going. Ooh, ooh, yes. Ooh, ooh. Monsieur <laughs> Jean, you have a question for the professor. <laughs> so, sports. Yeah. Music. Right. Food. Right. Does your genetics matter? For that, like, for example, like if a dude's like, yo, I'm supposed to play golf, you know, the idea of brothers is only like when we see them playing golf, we get so excited because we'd be like, oh, it's only a couple of them or women. For example, when we see them doing certain sports, we like holy criddle. Right. Or earlier when you was like white man can't jump. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> um, so I, I, I really want to understand, like scientifically, genetic wise, does this play part of the DNA? So. It's really interesting that you you go there, Wyclef, because as I said, in the, in the survey, when you get to food and sports, the sort of black and Latino and Asian acceptance of a kind of genetic explanation for race creeps up. So let's say it moves from like 30 to 34 percent on those questions, right? So still, the majority of people don't believe that it's an explanation. But, but you know, in our folk communities, when I'm in my barbershop, you know, cats are talking about, you know— you know, why would they pick a white boy in the NBA draft? Or, you know, can this guy, you know, who's Asian, can he actually be the point guard for the Knicks, right? Like, I mean, these are the questions that we live with every day. And the reality is... But it's because we only see one of them. We only see one, yeah, Yeah, so exactly. I'm saying, like, they be going to them places and they be like, okay, right. out of all of them, it looks like this one, it, it, he can surpass the norm, right? Right. So that, that so I'm... Well, the, these are social stories is, uh-huh. is what I'm going to say. So uh-huh. if, so... Basketball is the sport that black men in my age cohort grew up believing was theirs. Football and basketball, not baseball. You go back 50 years, the sport that my grandfather believed was the sport of black men was baseball. Jackie Robinson integrating the major leagues was the huge monumental achievement, right? So what changed in that 50 years? 
neighborhood poverty in black America gets worse. City governments start closing down baseball fields and they replace them with basketball hoops. And then you get a revolution. My grandfather broke his heart that I didn't want to play any baseball, right? So, so that's part of it. But there is a genetic story, Wyclef. So you, you, you take people, you steal people from West and Central Africa, Nigeria, Congo, and you bring them over to the United States, Haiti, Jamaica, Antigua, and you isolate them genetically. You say you cannot have sex or marry anyone except the people that have that skin color. You're going to reproduce a taller genetic population, right? Nigeria, Congo, these are all among the tallest countries in the world. So you bring people over, you isolate them for 500 years. Yes, black Americans are on average taller than others. My Scottish ancestry is holding me back at 5'9", right? This is where I wish, I wish things were different, right? But so, so you do that, and then you put basketball hoops in these communities where people are on average taller. It's not surprising that we have an NBA that looks the way it looks. So the stories, the culture, yes, the social yeah. forces, the genetics all come together. But the innate ability doesn't track the genetics. Ooh. Wow. That, that was so that was so and, and and I overstand that. So I guess through failed policies through the past what seventy, eighty years have shaped a rebirth of of genetics, right? Yeah. I'm I'm also fascinated by this idea that even what is explained by genetics still needs some social environmental consideration, right? I may have certain genes that lead me to be predisposed for certain things, but if it's not activated by my environment, if it's not reinforced by the community, I may never express that. Um, and so, you know, when the society pushes you in that direction, we may activate those things uh, a little bit more. Why, Clef, I want to abruptly changed because I just want to get this out. You, you mentioned this beforehand. What are you working on right now? So what's interesting about this theory of everything that's going on, I'm going to give a music theory to the world on genetics, just based on all this conversation, because just listening to Freestyle. It, uh, <laughs> so coming inside of the music industry at the age of 17 years old, Right from the gate, they let you know, like, okay, if you a black man, certain forms of music don't even step in the field because of the way these charts are set up, yeah. Yeah. right? Yeah. It's like now, a music genome. Yeah, so music genome. So what I did was I defied that because I, don't, I didn't believe in that. So I'll take you through a few albums. So the idea of the Fuji's creating the score and going into as a producer what was I listening to when I was listening to doing the score as a, a studio engineer? Now, if I was to tell anybody who's listening now, why Clef Jean, uh, a hip hop artist, right? At the age of 19, how was he crafting the score? And then I would tell you, I was listening to Pink Floyd. And I was telling you, I was listening to The Wall. Now, a lot of people is probably like, holy shit, we would have never guessed that. But hold on. Why would you have not guessed that? Because you'd be like, hold up. This kid's from Haiti. He grew up in the projects of Brooklyn. How did he discover Pink Floyd? So once again, right? So we defied the idea of you saying we must listen to this because we are in that certain environment. Also, I want people that are listening to this, um, the youth, 
challenge your environment, right? Because statistically, we are put in these environments through all of these years, like you said, through failed policies. So we're supposed to be taller. We suppose, But at the same time, I want them to understand that you are the masters of your own destiny. So after the score, and this is all proven theory, right? So I went on to create an album called The Carnival. The Carnival is in more than five languages. Now, if anyone from Sony Music is listening to this, from the head man in charge at the time, that was Donnie Einer, Tommy Matola. The score sells over 18 million, right? Now, why Clef Jean has an idea? Because you know that the, the label won another 18 million, right? So <laughs> you show up and you're like, yo, this is my new album. It's called The Carnival. And they put this thing on. It has English, French, Creole, Spanish, Right. And they're like, what the hell is this? Because once again, it's not supposed to fit within the geo space of saying, well, which chart are we going to put this on? Because if you sing and gone to November, this sounds like a grassroots record. And then you turn around and then you're doing Bee Gees. That sounds like disco. Then you turn around and you're singing Guantanamera. Like, dude, like you're all over the place. Why can't I be all over the place? Literally all what, over the place. Yeah, but what <laughs> but what what defines you? Why must you just be in one space? How am I able to understand the Bee Gees and at the same time understand Celia Cruz? So it's important now, I feel we're in modern time. And I feel like streaming has disrupted that. So what streaming has done now is it has proven my theory of the carnival in nineteen ninety seven. Cause now. My daughter, she listened to what the hell she want to listen to. Nobody could tell her, don't go to a Taylor Swift, to Migos, to whatever. She does whatever she wants. So now streaming has allowed the youth and the internet now, the revolution as the internet has allowed each individual to define themselves. Like now you can't put no kid in the geo category and say, oh, you can't listen to this, right? So then we had the eclectic and I called up Kenny Rogers. And I was like, yo, Kenny, um, I need you to do a drop for my album, The Eclectic. And people go, you from Haiti, man. <laughs> what the hell do you know about country music? Then I go into, well, people from the Caribbean. This is common. Like country music is one of the most natural form of music. And they go, why Clef? We don't get it. So here it is. So back in the days before we even was born, you had the evangelists that were bringing the faith over to the Caribbean. So when they was bringing the idea of the faith to the Caribbean, there were radio stations and there was antennas. So a lot of these antennas were bought by people that love country music because there's a part that people don't understand. Country music is storytelling, but at the same time, it's a lot of Bible verses, the original country music. So the idea would be, okay, we would bring country to the islands. So now when I'm in the projects, in Marlboro, and it's a Sunday afternoon, and my mother's listening to Devil Went Down to Georgia to find a soul to steal, you know, and I'm like, yeah, that's Charlie Daniels. What? What? I don't get it, Clef. So <laughs> I just want everyone to, to, to really understand. So at the end of the day, I don't know what my DNA is. I, my daughter says I'm 1% white. I might be 30% British. I don't know what's going on. But I only say that to say do not limit yourself to putting yourself in a box, like challenge that. So for example, like the next Y Clef album is going to be a country album, right? 
Who is who's going to tell me I can't do a country album? I sang at the Johnny Cash tribute. And if y'all look at this, it's going to trip people out. Once again, there's still a stereotype factor, right? Yeah. So they're like, uh, my man is like, okay, the next artist coming up, Wyclef Jean. Um, he's about to do a Johnny Cash. And dude, the place was startled. And I'm not, and when I'm standing up to sing Johnny Cash, what tripped everybody out? I'm not doing a popular Johnny Cash song. I'm doing a song that, they wouldn't even know. You know what I'm saying? They're like, So what I want people to understand is at the end of the day, do not limit yourself like to a box. Yes, through policies, we've been structured to say, okay, you know what? The baseball fields are going down. We putting up basketball courts. But I really want, as we move forward, I, I really want the kids to understand that you could defy that. You can still rise up beyond that and say, this is what I'm going to want my future to be. You know what I mean? Clef Jean with the Johnny Cash deep cut. You already know. <laughs> Delia's gone, baby. You already know, baby. <laughs> There's a consistent theme that comes up in these genetic conversations and, and almost any scientific conversation. You see science and its basis as a limit, as a prescription, or as a possible foundation, as a partial description, and grow from there. Al, what, what have you seen in your work, maybe in the survey results, that might be consistent with this advice that Wyclef is offering young people? Well, I think it's fantastic advice. And, and I think no matter what your positionality is in this society, adopting that Wyclef Jean, uh, you know, uh, Haitian Revolution attitude. Be, we're all 1804. It's, it's the way to... Go for it. There, 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 there's a real like sort of, you know, motivational book in there, right? Yeah. The sort of 1804 attitude, right? But at the same time, what, what I would like to see is a society that turns on the possibility that the structures that put these divisions in place begin to work to unravel them. If everyone has that 1804 mentality, it's a glide path to a, a fully realize democracy yeah. where you're not geocoded into basketball players or soccer players, country music listeners or hip hop listeners. Right. And that's what we really have the work to do. And what I think is great about the 23andMe project is that they're trying to leverage their power in this space to, to push in that direction. And, and my life's work is to have a world where it looks like Star Trek. You know, Star Trek, everyone has got these different sort of skin colors and you're from these different planets and everybody notices it, but it doesn't define who you are morally. And in that system, you're shaped much more by tastes and interest and the hybridity that is a fundamental part of the kind of cultural experience that Wyclef is talking about. Yeah. And we're a very long way away from that. Right? We didn't even start on this path until about 1965, about six years before I was born. Right? We don't even get laws that say that you can live wherever you want until 1968. Right? And so what we've done is we've passed the laws and then we've forgotten about it. And people are still living mostly isolated, racially geocoded life. We're still living in the world of the charts. And we're still living in the world of the charts. Yeah. And so it's going to take incredible 
cultural capital, incredible investment on the part of massive institutions and governments to move us in a direction where everyone has the kind of space to flow in any way they want. Well, I feel very fortunate that we have cultural capitalists like Wyclef Jean in the room. Let's work. That we have uh, powerful institutions like Northwestern University in the room and that we can keep having conversations like these to break down those charts, to think outside of the genetic box, but also understanding uh, the value of those and to get to a more diverse and democratic future. Uh, Thank you both so much for being here. Merci beaucoup. <laughs> Thank you, and, and and I just have to say I'm so proud of you, man. Oh, to see where you've come from, and uh, I remember many days on the stoop with you, yes, uh, in front of Claverly Hall, and uh, I'm just incredibly proud of you. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> Want to dig in more on today's topics and guests? Check our show notes, and if you enjoyed the episode. Share it with a friend, all your friends, and be sure to leave a review. If you want to hear more surprising stories about how we're all related, search and follow Spit on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Spit is an iHeartRadio podcast with 23andMe. I'm Baratunde Thurston. You can find out more about me at baratunde.com or sign up for my text messages. Just hit me up at 202-902-7949. Put hashtag SpitPodcast in your message so I know where you came from.